the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. They were speculating one thing. I mean, did you really kill him? And what had happened? Was it an accident? I, again, I, I don't know. <laughs> so it was just across the board, a bunch of craziness. Of course, I mean, small town, they're rampant speculation about everything every single day. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fianick. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And this is part two of a three-part story about Alex Stevens. So if you haven't listened to part one, you're going to really have no fucking idea what we're talking about because it is a wild, complex, crazy story. So go back and listen to part one, and then you can binge this episode right now. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Can have two episodes. Very fun. Very two fun. episodes to listen Amazing. to. Before we jump into the case, we got to know, Billy, what day is it today? Because there's some good days. Today is July 7th. And I believe this day was made for all of us because, first, National Dive Bar Day. Ugh. Love a good it's dive Jack's bar. Jack's day. I yes. love a good dive. And now that the dive bars are back open, there's nothing better than paying five bucks in cash for a beer while you get another beer spilled on your feet while you pick some songs on a jukebox. Maybe play and then some Jack, you get like you get like a burger from the dive bar. I mean, we're both That's thinking of the same dive bar. Yeah, nice, yeah, a nice burger. Mm, yes. Happy National Dive Bar Day. What else do we have? All right. Chocolate Day. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is a great day. They're loading up these days. Some days are just, you know, but they're loading up these days. Chocolate day. National Macaroni Day. Ooh. Mm-hmm. You could really put all these days into one and have like the most epic day in the world. Totally. Yes. Father, daughter, take a walk together day. Oh, that's nice. Creepy. What? <laughs> <laughs> Depends on your dad. I love my dad, but like we don't go on walks to be like, hey, the day says so. It's time to do it. <laughs> I actually go on a lot of walks with my, well, with both of my parents, but I've m- had many a walks with my dad since, you know, the whole COVID thing. It's yeah, Tell the Truth Day, which we do every uh, Wednesday and Thursday here on the First Degree in Killing Time. And it's also, I have to say this, it's not exactly cooked fruit, so I don't know how Uh-oh. you might feel about this, Alexis. National Strawberry Sunday Day. Awful. Because <laughs> the strawberries like are mixed. They're cooked, and I don't like them mixed with the, the, the creamy goodness that is like a vanilla or chocolate flavor. I'm not into it. I don't understand why there are so many cooked fruit days. Like, there's just... Because that, the odds are stacked against me in several ways, including in fruit inclusion days. Yeah, the cooked fruit industry, the cooked fruit cabal. The That's cooked right. fruit cabal. The cooked fruit. <laughs> A conspiracy that is unruly, yeah. that is ready to take no prisoners. That's right. Well, yeah. other than that, I mean, today is great. Go to a dive bar, get drunk, eat some macaroni and cheese, get a little chocolate dessert, and not a cherry sundae strawberry sundae that's right okay well that's enough of that so let's turn down the lights and turn up your anxiety because this could be you
Last week, we took you back to January of 2017, to the depths of the Savage River State Forest in Maryland, which was the scene of two missing hikers. At first, it was thought that 20-year-old Megan Schaefer and 24-year-old Alex Stevens had taken what's referred to as a suicide walk to leave the world together. Their cars were left at the base of the trailhead, and Alex's cat was found in a carrier a mile up the trail on High Rock Cliff. Ritualistic items were also found in the form of candles, knives, and personal items. The search for them was already underway when a 911 call from Megan came in. She was alive and had broken into a home to find a phone to call for help. She was rescued shortly thereafter. She told them she and Alex had fallen off the cliff together. Two hours later, Alex was found. He was dead and had sustained certain injuries that couldn't be explained by a fall. His throat had been cut and a knife was lying on the ground near his head. Here's the exchange between law enforcement that we left off with in part one. Communication, PCO Coleman, how may I help you? Hi, PCO Coleman, this is Captain Albert. How are you? Good, how are you? Pretty good. Hey, can you put a text out for me, please? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the person that we were looking for, mm-hmm. I don't know how we want to word this, but the deceased individual was uh, located on private property. Mm-hmm. And the investigation will now be a homicide investigation. And Maryland State Police will be taking over. The story that began as a case of two missing hikers had then transformed into a possible double suicide and was now being approached as a homicide investigation. And meanwhile, word of the bizarre circumstances of this case was spreading. Odd items indicative of some sort of a ritualistic act were found at the scene, a detail that onlookers clung to. And this story and all the twists, turns, questions, and contradictions was becoming more intriguing and mysterious by the minute. And that's because this small town had never seen anything like this before. Our first degree from last week, Jonathan, is still with us. Megan had been a mentor of his. And even though he had reported to the scene that day as a volunteer firefighter, he still struggled to understand the bizarre details of this case himself. We know that she was uh, not closed. We know that he looked like apparently he fell. We know that there were some satanic things that could have been involved. They talked about animals in cages. <laughs> they talked about candles. So my mind's thinking, well, that's really, really weird. And I mean, people can do whatever they want to. But for normal human beings, that's more satanic ritual things in the woods. I keep saying we're rural because we are rural. Nothing like this ever occurred in this area. And this took the paper by storm because on newspaper, I'll be very honest, they picked up on the small things. High school sports games sometimes make the front page. Jonathan referenced the newspapers cling to the story. And he's right. This was a story that was reported on constantly, further seducing and sucking locals into the unfolding events. But let's shift back to where we left off in the story. There are a few things happening at once. Let's start with what was going on at Savage River State Forest following the discovery of Alex's body. They called people to recover the body, the medical examiner, of course, to declare deceased, take pictures, document for documentation. That body, of course, because it was of how it was done, um, they weren't sure if um, there were stab wounds, falling off a cliff, pushed, whatever, but the body was then taken for an autopsy. 
um, which our autopsies here in Maryland always go to Baltimore. There would have been a lot to unpack at this scene. If the police really did think a murder had taken place here, then there were multiple scenes to process because we've got the cliff at High Rock, then we've got the location where Alex's body had been found. We have the area where the cars were found. And remember, their cars were in disarray as well. And then the house where Megan was rescued from. Plus, Megan and Alex walked a long distance, both to the top of High Rock and as well as their final locations. So it's lots to do, lots of ground to cover, to say the least. So in tandem with what was happening in the forest, Megan was being transported to the hospital. And she was looking down the barrel of some very hard questions. Mainly, what were she and Alex doing that night in the woods? What was the intention of this outing? Why bring the strange items there? Why weren't they clothed? What happened after they fell off this cliff? And of course, how did Alex end up with his throat being slashed? Megan was rushed to the Western Maryland Regional Medical Center in Cumberland to be treated. And remember, she had walked through the night naked through long stretches of forest. It was January in Maryland. It was cold, she was hypothermic, and suffering from frostbite when she arrived. And in addition to her cold exposure injuries, Megan also had a broken shoulder and a broken back, which had presumably occurred during her fall from the cliff. The lack of concrete information about what caused Alex's death fueled speculation. People really want to know whether Megan was a victim or a villain, and whether other individuals would be connected to this incident. They were speculating one thing. I mean, did she really kill him? And what had happened? Was it an accident? I said, again, I, I don't know. <laughs> so it was just across the board, a bunch of craziness, of course. I mean, small town, there's rampant speculation about everything every single day. Jonathan's head was spinning, too. He was just as curious as everyone else. I run into lots of scenarios, and one of the things that came to my mind was she didn't have any clothes on, and, and they're in the middle of the woods. So my mind only goes to the obvious. Were they doing something inappropriate in the woods? What had happened? Was it an accident? Or was, it, was she the victim, and was she doing self-defense? Self-defense was an interesting theory, and Jonathan would have particular knowledge of Megan's strengths and abilities. He told us in part one about how skilled Megan was at Taekwondo and how she was actually an excellent sparring partner. So could Megan's strength in martial arts training play into this scenario somehow? She's a trained martial artist. She knows black. She knows self-defense. She's really good at it. She's a weightlifter. She knows how to handle herself. I have no doubt in my mind that she could overpower a, a male at any point. Was she being attacked and was it self-defense? Was she raped or was she just was they just doing something they weren't supposed to be doing and she was the aggressor and attacked him for no reason? On the day Megan was found, she provided pieces of information to some of her rescuers. So the easy part of Megan's story was that she and Alex had fallen off High Rock Cliff. There was evidence of that. They had the injuries to prove that. But what they really struggled to understand was what happened at the bottom of the cliff. Megan said that the reason she and Alex were out there that night was for some type of cleansing ritual. Apparently, Alex wanted to burn some of his stuff in a fire. Megan said, quote, It was ritualistic, but I didn't understand the purpose. I was just there for emotional support. I knew that burning some shit was the intention. When Megan asked if she brought any of her own things to this ritual, she said, My karate stuff. He had a few books, some clothes. He had me carry a kitchen knife, I guess for 
cutting like branches or anything that we come across. Alex carried his cat. Megan also said that they had gone to the top of the cliff. They lit some candles and removed their clothes. And they removed their clothes because Alex said it was more pure that way. They then fell the 20 to 30 feet from the cliff. Megan then said that she and Alex remained at the bottom of the cliff for an undetermined amount of time before finding that her friend had died from the injuries he sustained in this fall. But Megan's version of what had occurred started to morph into a different narrative, and then several different narratives. So the next thing that she said was that Alex actually didn't die from this fall, and that they had both gotten up and walked through the woods together. After a while, Alex fell to the ground, and then that's actually where he died. But then she changed her story again and said that Alex fell onto the knife, and then that's how he died. But then she changed her story one more time. She said that after the fall, she and Alex had made it to this body of water when he decided that he wanted to kill himself. It was then that Alex cut his own throat. And according to one of the EMTs who participated in the rescue, Megan said that, quote, this is probably not going to look good, but when they find the knife, my handprints will be on the knife. So the EMT did not question Megan on this further, but he documented her statements and told detectives so they could meet them at the hospital. Law enforcement questioned Megan from her hospital bedside, and here's some of the information that she provided to them. She told them that she had not been sexually assaulted that night, that she did not have sex that night with Alex. She also said that they hadn't been drinking and they hadn't been using drugs. On that first day, she told the police that Alex had died from falling off the cliff. But she was interviewed three times in three days. And her account of what happened evolved and changed each time. And the third time she said, quote, He's kneeling in the stream, and he tells me I have to hold the knife. And he pulls on it, but I try to yank it back, because, you know, like, I didn't want to do it clearly. And then he took me and he pulled it across, and pulled it across again, and made sure it slit his throat, and then I dropped the knife because I saw what had happened. Okay, so this was the most dramatic departure from Megan's original story, when she said that Alex pulled her off the cliff with him and forced her to hold this knife while he fell on it. And the account she gave culminated in this final one, where she changed her story yet another time, and said that Alex was holding her hand and then pulled the knife across his throat several times as she held the knife. Okay, so based on what we know so far, everyone, what do we think of this? It's a lot, a lot of different stories, but you also have to think about when she was being questioned during all of these stories and what kind of state of mind that she was in and what she could have been suffering from with her injuries or with her hypothermia and all that kind of stuff could have definitely, I mean, you, you have no idea. And the trauma, it's like, you just don't know what kind of state of mind you're in to be asked these questions that they're taking account of. Yeah, absolutely. I think she had no sleep. She had like stumbled with a broken back through the woods naked. I think like your perception on what had occurred. Totally. In the rain. I think your perception on what had occurred. I I wouldn't want to be quoted verbatim in a police report. Let me tell you that much. I'd be like, you let me talk to anyone? Well, and then also, I mean, listen to her on the the 911 call too. I mean, she She can barely talk. Her teeth are chattering. Like she sounds like she's five years old because she's just so fucked up, you know? So fucked up. She's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. And as, you know, as far as whether, first of all, 
you learn the first thing you learn in, in from from any lawyer is you never talk anyway. No. Um, but you know, whether she had a family or there or friends there to tell her that don't talk because she very well, I mean, if if you broke your back and had gone through all of that, I gotta think she was on some kind of pain medicine, um, being in that hospital. And then, you know, I don't begrudge the police for for asking, but you also have to have some backup of, from your family saying like, don't, you know, just don't talk. Well, I think something to consider here, and I think we have to discuss our theories in an ongoing sort of degree through the course of these three episodes, is that at this point, the police probably thought more people were involved. Yeah. You know, are there other people who were there? I mean, I think they're just grasping at anything to yeah. explain Alex's death and not necessarily even trying to suggest that Megan is the culprit. That right. being said, it is unethical. It's unethical to question people. Uh, Megan's back was broken. Her shoulder was broken. They put her in one of those neck braces and transported her in the ambulance that way, like as if she had a spinal cord injury. If that person is so hurt, then <laughs> they shouldn't be questioned and then and quoted for the record. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just... No sleep, cold. It's not like they're trying to find Alex anymore at this point. Like, you're not trying to, like, figure out what happened to try to locate him to make sure he's okay or not. Like, they found him, and he's dead, right? So it's like... Do we really need to push her to do it day one? Is that the thing? It's like, you're not trying to, you're not trying to get information to try to find somebody. Like, But there, could be, there sh- could be another killer out there. There could be a killer on the loose. That's true, I guess. Sure. Yeah, it's just uh, nothing makes sense. <laughs> no, no, of course. And the question here is, could Megan's injuries have hindered her from remembering what happened? Was she filling in the blanks with guessing? You know, her story was sort of outlandish. So apparently the reason why they continued with questioning her despite her injuries was because it was determined that Megan didn't suffer any brain injuries. So they got the green light from medical personnel to question her. So of course, is it possible that she was totally lucid and her mind was sharp and she was simply lying to cover things up. That's possible, but who knows? Another thing worth asking is also whether it's even possible to cut your own throat. I mean, we have to pressure test Megan's accounting of events. Well, a simple Google search, which I did, will reveal that it certainly is possible and it's happened several times, but it is relatively rare when we're talking about suicide. And you also have to realize that at this point, this was day one of rescue, day one of body recovery. No autopsy had been completed. So the decision to pursue this ordeal as a homicide investigation came from law enforcement simply looking at Alex where he lay when they found him and observing his wounds as they were with the naked eye. So we have to ask, is it premature to label this a homicide based on what we know so far? Of course, these are all rhetorical questions. We don't know. I mean, things are still unfolding. So there are other possibilities at play that law enforcement would need to consider. So whether or not Megan had been victimized and whether Alex had, in fact, died as a result of self-defense. Another possibility was whether or not other people could have been involved in this or responsible for killing Alex. That could still be out there. And thinking about this practically, if we're pointing the finger at Megan as the murderer, is it even possible that she could have overpowered Alex to such a degree that she could have cut his throat without him fighting back at all. At this time, this would have happened. She had a broken back and she had a broken shoulder from falling off the cliff. But either way, we can't deny that there are pretty huge problems with each of these potential theories.
days into Megan's recovery and the inexplicable death of Alex, the community was struggling to understand what had transpired. And the biggest question, how did Alex end up with that fatal knife wound in his neck? Theories and speculation ran wild. Every day we saw something new uh, and some type of theory. People were, again, still were confused because no one knew the truth. We kept hearing rumors of what may or may not have happened. With so many outstanding questions, law enforcement would need to get insight into Alex and Megan's lives, both separately and in terms of their relationship. And when it came to Alex's relationship with Megan, some of the reporting refers to them as boyfriend and girlfriend. Some refers to them as exes, and some refers to them as just friends. So the truth of their relationship could be any one of these three possibilities or a mixture of all of them. And one important thing the police wanted to look into was this idea that Alex may have gone into the woods that night to kill himself, which begs the question, what was Megan doing there with him? Was she supposed to die that night too? Was she there for moral support or something unknown? So in part one, we explained how Alex's best friend since middle school, Stephen Moon, had discovered Alex and Megan's cars and had hiked to High Rock to look for them. In his early conversations with the police, he theorized that Alex had gone to this location to kill himself. Surely this idea must have come from somewhere. There must have been some indication that Alex was experiencing something out of character or had entertained this in some way before. But here's something strange Alex's father later said to the Cumberland Times News. He said, quote, I never, never, ever thought he was suicidal. I know my son. He had all these plans to do things. He purchased all these toys for the cat. He's speaking directly in reference to the cat found at High Rock, probably defending this idea that possibly Alex was going to hurt the cat, right? He had purchased all these toys for the cat. But what's really weird is that it's our understanding that Stephen was at Alex's parents' house when he offered these theories about suicide on the evening of January 4th in front of Alex's parents. So what is the truth? Was Alex demonstrating odd behavior indicative of suicidal ideations or not? And that question could only be answered by digging into Alex Stevens, how he behaved in the months, weeks, days prior to his death. So law enforcement obviously wanted to know everything. So who is Alex Stevens? What's his story? What has he done? Where has he been? What we could find online about Alex's early life primarily came from his obituary in the Cumberland Times News. So Alex was born in Cumberland in 1992. He participated in activities like the Eagle Scouts. He loved camping in the outdoors. And in high school, he was involved in school plays, musicals, and concert choir, and was said to have a very fine baritone voice. And he did. Just hear it for yourself. So his voice is pretty haunting, especially considering everything that happened. And Alex played instruments. He was also in jazz, orchestra, and marching band. He was an athlete. He played football, basketball, and ran cross country. And he attended Cambridge University summer program for high school students in England. He was clearly a good student because he even gave the senior address at his high school graduation. 
So Alex sounds like the kind of son anyone would dream of having. And after high school, he had his eyes set on the military. So he entered the Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut. Now, the Coast Guard Academy is like West Point for the Army. Uh, You know, it's 250 cadets join each summer, about 20% drop out, the rest graduate with a bachelor's degree, and then go on to serve at least five years in the Coast Guard. And above the Academy's entrance in the hall uh, are the words, who lives here, reveres honor, honors duty. So while he was enrolled in the Academy, he joined the Glee Club. And that clip of him singing that you just heard was actually from 2012 when he was at the Glee Club at the Coast Guard Academy. In the video, he looks handsome, he's well-dressed, but beyond the great voice and his polished demeanor, Alex looked really happy, but with something else going on in the background. So the belief is that he was, yes, until he was disenrolled from the Coast Guard Academy following an incident. So in 2013, a lower-ranking female cadet had accused Alex of entering her barracks room without permission while she was sleeping. Then, he apparently reached under a blanket and began touching her thigh. The incident was reported. When Alex was confronted, he said that he was drunk, and that he mistook the room he entered for his girlfriend's room. After an investigation into what happened was conducted, he was disenrolled from the academy as part of a non-judicial punishment. According to academy spokesman David Santos, which is what he said during an interview with the Cumberland Times News, The reporting on the facts surrounding this incident are interesting because tonally, they're told one of two ways, and you can look this up in tons of reporting. Some suggest that this whole thing was a total misunderstanding and that Alex is being wrongly, you know, dismissed from the academy due to this misunderstanding. For example, Alex's dad said in a media interview, quote, every September they change rooms. His girlfriend had been in that room. Alex was drunk the night he entered that familiar room, which was dark, where he touched a thigh of a young woman. Only it was someone else. He turned himself in because of the honor code. Okay, so I was skeptical, so I looked it up. So it's worth noting that other reports of this incident state that the female victim, the lower-ranking cadet, was actually the one to report the incident. So Alex's dad is lying. And other reporting took the opposite stance in this, suggesting this incident was indicative of a darker side of Alex. And it's like what I said, like half the people interpreted it one way, drunken, petty misunderstanding. The other half took it as like this deliberate foreshadowing of something darker within Alex. The truth we'll never know, but it can be interpreted in one of two ways. So whether this was a drunken misunderstanding or it was a predatory incident, we can't be certain of. But what we do know is the fact that Alex was disenrolled from the Coast Guard Academy and it really took a toll on him. So he was asked to leave the school in his senior year at the Academy when he was really, really close to graduating. So he was devastated and following his departure is reportedly when Alex's personality, his behavior and his trajectory shifted drastically. So he enrolled in Frostburg University to study engineering, but he just wasn't the same happy guy that he once was. And according to Stephen Moon, his friend, by 2017, Alex was experimenting with drugs like LSD. He grew his hair out, he lost a bunch of weight, and he turned vegan. And actually, Stephen described Alex's diet as that being of a quote-unquote fruititarian. His family discussed how Alex was dabbling in different religions and looking for spiritual fulfillment. Okay, so based on how this sounds, it seems as though Alex's behavior, his interests, his personality really shifted 
between his departure from the Coast Guard Academy and 2017. And you could see why it would. You know, the Coast Guard Academy, it's it's not like just getting kicked out of college. You know, he was this was going to be potentially his entire life. And his personality is completely different and he looks completely different. So investigators turn their attention to the days immediately preceding Megan and Alex's trip into the woods. And what they uncovered was odd. Remember in part one of the story when we told you about Alex's cat being found in the carrier out in the woods? And we mentioned that Alex's other pets were missing, his two ferrets and his family dog, Sid. It's our understanding that the ferrets did go on the hike with Megan and Alex in the woods. But that wasn't the case with Sid the dog. Alex's dad told investigators that earlier in the day that Alex and Megan went missing, Alex had gone to the family house, grabbed Sid, and told his grandmother that he was taking the dog for a walk. Okay, seems pretty normal, right? That's not normal, because according to Alex's family, this isn't something he would normally do. It's something that he'd never done before. Alex never returned with the dog. Then he disappeared. But the dog wasn't found out at High Rock in the forest. Only Alex's cat was. So eventually, Sid was found. Sid had been left at a local graveyard after being locked in his dog carrier. The dog was not hurt, and the dog was returned to Alex's family. But there's no denying that this is yet another odd twist in the story. What does this all mean? Why would somebody go to their parents' house, put their mom's dog in a dog carrier, and leave it at a graveyard before going off into the woods? Like, this is a thing that makes this case so profound and interesting. And remember, his friend said uh, he's he would be when he was missing. He'd be one of two places. He'd be at the graveyard, or yeah. The, and he nailed both places. And he went sure. both places. Well, and yeah. I think like what you said, Billy, with the like him going out of his way to ask to take the dog for a walk. Like that's such a telling moment. Like it's mm-hmm. such an innocuous thing, but such a telling moment. Being like, well, if it's never been done before, yeah, you've never taken this, shown an interest in this dog at all. Yeah, you've. And Alex lived alone. Alex lived in his own apartment, so it means he like drove over to be like, I'm going to take the dog out. I'd be like, hard pass. Why are you here? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's so bizarre. So bizarre. Totally. But what we have to realize is that whatever was going on this day, when we're asking what this means, is that Alex included his pets in whatever his plan was. So luckily, the dog and the cat weren't harmed. The dog was found and returned to the family, and Stephen Moon returned the cat also to Alex's family. It seems as though the ferrets may have vanished into the woods, though. I can't find any information about where they ended up. I know they were missing, and I know that the dog and the cat were safely recovered. So we have to imagine what our first degree Jonathan, what he was doing in his head and what a loss he would have been at learning about Alex and the strange aspects of his final days. And people who knew Megan struggled to reconcile these details as well. I kept thinking, okay, Alexander, apparently his family took the social media as well, was a really, really good person. Apparently I did not know Alexander I know that he was a student. I knew that he apparently had a really, really good family. He was a really good individual. But I didn't think about Megan, too. I knew that she was a really good individual. I knew her personally, so I knew that she was outgoing. I knew that she helped out people a lot. Um, she was friends with everybody. So I was very confused because I would not think that Megan would even be a part of something like this if it was something that was a ritual or something satanic. But I also couldn't fathom either that um, her coming out of the woods undressed what she had got herself into. Jonathan continued to grapple with certain aspects of what he was hearing. 
And Megan knew that she was going to a bad situation, and that bad situation was, in fact, <laughs> occurring before they got there. I would have thought that she would have stopped it before they got there. And that's where I'm torn, because when did it go wrong? What went wrong? And or were they both willingly planning on going there? Because if something were to occur beforehand, Megan would have stopped it. Again, she was strong enough, mentally strong enough to have, would have, and should have stopped if something was going wrong before. So that's, I don't know. I guess the moral story is just, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so let's take a moment to go over how we're really feeling about what we've learned so far, because it is a lot. We'll start with Megan her behavior following her rescue, and her ever-changing story. Does it make her seem guilty of something? I honestly, we don't know. And then you hear about Alex's strange behavior, about the animals being caged and taking from the home. And then you hear about the allegations made against him at the Coast Guard Academy. You hear that Alex had been acting strangely in the time leading up to his death. And you really, really struggle to understand what this could all mean as a whole. And you struggle to pick a side with any true conviction whatsoever. And I wish I could tell you that it's going to get easier, but the details of this case continued to shock, awe, and confuse everyone at every turn. Yeah. So for me, where I stand so far, I'm just sort of enthralled with this odd sequence of events that Alex has demonstrated. The pets, the animals thing is so strange to me to just go out of your way. I almost feel like and again, there's no evidence of this. I needed to like preface what I'm about to say. It's very pagan. The mm-hmm. idea that like he should bring animals into the woods with him and the wood animal thing. Like, I just feel like part of him was like, let's bring them outside and let's, let's do this. You know, there's something going on here that is, has nothing to do with suicide that we have to try to take into consideration because the animals thing is pretty distinct. The animals thing, the uh, being completely naked in the dead of winter. where To it make is it more pure. To make it more pure. Like it would just, it's a bizarre time to do some sort of a ritual. I mean, it wouldn't be my choice of time to no. do something like that. Freezing. It's very uncomfortable, very freezing. And the thing that I like struggle with is like no situation. It's like I try to think of every single type of a situation that could happen and none of them make sense. Like there's not one that's like, oh, you know, that's probably what happened. Like even if there's not all the information there yet, I still am like none of this fucking makes any sort of sense when you think about it. Yeah. And he's he's cobbling together what it seems like a lot of different readings, a lot of different parts of, of different religions. And the idea of this cleansing ritual, which we've, you know, and I I was looking up cleansing rituals after hearing about it, trying to see, like, whether he was, I couldn't find out if he was doing, like, you know, one type or another type or whatever. But in general, it's like he wanted to burn the, burn the past. That's usually, that's what you do with these cleansing rituals. And, you know, it seems like definitely there was, there was something going on with him that he wanted some type of rebirth, whatever that was. Right. Totally. There's a lot to consider. And we encourage you to just sort of bank all of this because we're going to have to assess all of this at the end to try to understand what this means for Megan and for Alex. But let's get back to the investigation for a second. So at this point, law enforcement had made visual judgments about the neck wounds Alex had suffered out in the forest, right? They they decided there was an there was a homicide investigation to be had prior to even receiving the autopsy results. The autopsy results were now in. 
And the assistant medical examiner ruled that Alex's death had been caused by, quote, sharp force injuries to the neck. His manner of death, which is the important one, was ruled a homicide. So according to her, she observed seven, quote, sawing motions from a knife across Alex's neck. These, quote, saws, she believed were forceful enough to cut through his carotid artery and jugular vein and nick the bone of his spinal column. And it was the medical examiner's belief that the wounds could not have been self-inflicted because Alex had suffered major injuries from his fall, including broken ribs and a punctured lung. So we also want to talk a little bit about the knife that was used to cut Alex's neck at this point. So Megan told conflicting stories about how it got down to the bottom of the cliff with them. But those are all irrelevant because what is true is that the knife that was used was Alex's and he had brought it from home. It was laying next to his head when it was found. So what does that mean? What I infer that to mean is that Megan didn't bring the knife. Alex brought the knife. Like if all of this is like sort of like Megan is complicit, but like Alex is the catalyst. Yeah, she's so far at sea. Like she's just kind of going got along with what he's asking on this yeah. bizarre night that she didn't seem to know what the hell was going on and that none of this was like, was her plan. None of this really seems like it was her idea. It was his animals. It was his knife. It was his, his, thing. Ritual, his ritual, his stuff. Yes. And that's, that's, I, I struggle with this case so much to understand like Megan's role in this. Yeah. And it reminds me, it's so familiar in that like, have you ever dated an older guy and you just kind of go along with whatever they say? Yeah. It reminds me of that. It's like, it's like she just, it's your shit, dude. I'm just here to help sort of, but like she had no idea this would get carried on to such a degree. We also have to think about the fact that if he was kind of going down this sort of uh, spiral of some sort or whatever, whatever was happening to him in the like recent weeks that were leading up to it. I mean, she was probably scared and like, not sure what he was going to like what he was capable of or what he was going to do. So especially when you're that young, like oh, yeah. talk about going along with somebody. Definitely. Yeah. No. And she might've just very well been like, I want to, I don't want him to be alone. He's going to do this stuff. I'm just going to go, I'll do, go do it with him just so he doesn't do anything crazy. Yeah, that's true. Totally. So the information you have learned today reflect events that didn't unfold quickly. Megan was in the hospital for a month recovering as this cloud of suspicion was hovering over her. And the fact that Alex's death was being investigated as a homicide was not announced publicly until July 6th of 2017. Now that's six months after the death. So this is unfolding after a long period of time. So like you have to imagine the community, they're like, there's going to be answers in a week. Like Megan's released in a month and then six months later... Yeah, that's a long time. Only six months later do they find out, like, oh, they're investigating this as something suspicious. Yeah. Like, that's how long it took for people to understand what was going on. Yeah. So Megan's out just living her life. And when the homicide status of the case was made public, the police did not reveal whether they had any suspects. So people are probably looking around going, okay, what is it? What's the deal? And that begs the question, if they believe Megan was a true murderer— If they had these autopsy results indicating that Alex's neck wounds could not have been self-inflicted, if they didn't believe anyone else to be in the woods that night with Megan and Alex, why wasn't Megan arrested right away? 
or even a month or two in. Yeah. Yeah. Nine mu- you know, that is one of the most suspicious aspects to me. It's just like, it's been months and they haven't arrested her. <laughs> yeah. That's, it's that's like, it's crazy. so odd. Yeah. So we can only make calculated guesses, but there's something wrong here. And something just wasn't adding up and couldn't be explained. Something that caused prosecutors and investigators to hesitate in charging Megan with Alex's murder. And there's something else that had come to the surface in the midst of the investigation. And this is something that really, really complicated this case. And it complicated the public perception of Megan even further. And it honestly, it's not a good look at all. So it turns out that on December 28th of 2017, a week before Alex's death, he had opened what's called a quote-unquote transfer on death account with the firm that handled all of his investments. So he had $188,000 in this account. And during this process, Alex designated someone new as the beneficiary to 100% of his money. And you can go ahead and guess who the new beneficiary was. And if you're guessing Megan, you'd be right. And again, not a great look. You had made her the beneficiary. And I believe it was an investment account. I'm not sure if it was an insurance policy or investment account. But anyways, she was the beneficiary of, of a lump sum of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it was awkward. And that, again, was, was one of the motives and one of the theories pitched was that it was uh, a killing be- um, and the motive was money related. So... We thought for a while that money was involved. Maybe she, maybe they were lovers and that he wanted to do this, the, the change of insurance or money around to, to give to her. And she was planning on that being kind of a motive for killing. That was one of the theories that was put, pitched out there. The transfer of funds to Megan was completed on January 6th, two days after Alex's death. And you have to imagine what it was like to be Alex's parents. Hearing about all these events that unfolded, denying that your son was suicidal, then finding out that this $188,000 is being designated to this girl. Yeah. They were not happy. A, you lost your son. Yeah. That's awful. And then this is just the kick in the teeth where it's just like she had to have done something. There's something here or or she, or he was under her spell or something along those lines. Well, I mean, and think about uh, this whole case so far, right there. It's like, why would she have done it? Like what the hell is going on? And it's like, okay, well now here's your motive. Like there it is. It's money. And like, there is a reason for if she did have a hand in what was going on. Well, that's fair, but here, here's the thing. They're not married. So it's not an automatic like default. She gets his money. They've been dating for three months. He went in and made this proactive effort to transfer his money to her upon his death. And then he happened to die of suspected possible suicide a week later. It's almost like he planned it is my Mm -hmm. whole point in all this, because I really feel as though he planned to kill himself that night. I, I mean, all of the signs point to it. Include This is the nail in the coffin of that theory. But then you could look at it the other way, like what Billy just said is like, or did she have him under some sort of a spell and was like kind of controlling the situation on her end? Like you could, like everything else in this case, you can look at things both ways and they kind of make sense, but then also don't. Anything's possible. That's true. Anything's possible. But it looks bad for Megan. Again, people are just in the public hearing these, like, reportings in the news. So it's like, oh, my God. And plus, she benefited by $188,000. Of course, they're going to think she's guilty. So you're probably wondering, if you're listening, 
Alex was a Coast Guard Academy dropout. He was 24. Who, what 24-year-olds have this kind of money? That's a lot (laughs) of savings. Yeah, it's a lot for his age and having no job, right? Other than like Ruby Tuesdays or wherever he just works for fun. But according to an interview given by Alex's father, the money was from Alex's great aunt, who didn't have any children of her own. So she had put money into a trust for him. When Alex turned 18, the money became his. Alex was good with investments. He was frugal. He didn't spend it. So needless to say, when Alex's father found out about his son's money being transferred to Megan, he requested a court-ordered temporary restraining order on the money to prevent Megan from touching it. And the Stevens listed several reasons for this restraining order, including, quote, it appears the activity taking place in the woods surrounding Pine Swamp Road was planned for a period of approximately two weeks, during which time the decedent and Megan Schaefer focused irrationally on this event. The document also states Alexander Stevens was, quote, not of sound mind or capacity when he executed the transfer. As time passed, Alex's family filed motions to extend the restraining order on the money, which were granted. So naturally, the police wanted to understand the connection between this transfer of money to Megan and Alex's death. And you got to think there had to be one, right? Especially, you know, we've we watch so much true crime and listen to so much true crime. Oh, yeah. It seems like there has to be. But the parents are also in this difficult situation because they're trying to say he was not sound of mind, which potentially could lead towards a uh, uh, affecting the case against uh, uh, Megan by saying that he was suicidal. You know what I mean? So they're 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 yeah, kind of it doesn't of, help him out. It doesn't help him out there. But and uh, God, these parents, I just feel well. So this whole case is filled with those contradictions. Yeah. You know, because it's all like motive based. Like the the biggest thing with me so far, and I know we're not necessarily at like the condemning Megan phase, but she has no motive. Like this was his initiation of the money. It's not like she took out a life insurance policy on her husband. Like she's just this passive sort of figure. But then she would have the motive. If he transferred it to her, then she does have the motive. She might not have even known about it. That's the thing. It's like she could not have even known. So we'll have to see, you know. But again, it's just one of these amazing curiosities about this case. Right. So months are continuing to pass and the case continued to age with no significant developments in the case. And the speculation and curiosity continued. So people batted theories and ideas around Reddit and social media as they do, especially in cases that happen recently. And then on September 11th of 2017, a little over nine months after Alex's death, there was a development. And it's hard to say whether onlookers believe this was long overdue or whether this was a surprise development coming out of nowhere. But Megan was arrested. She was charged with secondary murder, manslaughter, and also assisted suicide. So all of those things at once. I didn't know that you could charge people with multiple things that contradict each other charges that's that's the curious thing where it's like she did something we're not sure what so needless to say when the state brought charges against megan it's almost as though they themselves didn't know what they were accusing her of but they covered their bases by charging her with murder manslaughter and assisting in a suicide What this indictment indicates is that they believed her to be guilty of contributing to Alex's death. But how and why, they didn't know. And they didn't really care to 
explained in these initial charges. Every step of the plan that led to Alex's death seemed to be artfully crafted by Alex himself. He even prepared to have his money transferred to Megan upon his death. The trial of Megan Schaefer for the death of Alexander Stevens would be one that drew the eyes of the community as well as the ire. Next week, the trial that seduced the public and the testimony from Megan, which called into question everything we thought we knew about this case. You'll be here for it. You'll love it. You better stick around for part three. Yeah, and we finally, I mean, this is going to answer a lot of the questions that we have. We finally get to hear from Megan. All right, well, until next week, thank you, Jonathan, for being our first degree this week, last week, and also next week. Um, if you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. You can join our Facebook group by searching the first degree in the search bar. We are talking true crime all the time. And I can only imagine all of the crazy discussions that we're probably going to have on this case because yes. it's fucking bonkers. Um, and check back tomorrow on our feed. We'll have a brand new episode of killing time for you. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But but not, not that, that close. close. <laughs> happy chocolate day. Happy dive bar day. Oh, happy macaroni day. Woo! The days of days, friends. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing team Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One. Sources for this episode include... Reporting for the Cumberland Times News by Teresa McMinn and Mike Sawyers. Excellent, excellent job covering this story. CNHI News, WV News, Court Documents, and as always, our first three guests are always our largest source. <laughs>